Chapter Three of Wild Wales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Steve Goff. Wild Wales by George Borrow. Chapter Three. On the morning after our arrival, we went out together, and walked up and down several streets. My wife and daughter, however, soon leaving me to go into a shop. I strolled about by myself. Chester is an ancient town with walls and gates, a prison called a castle, built on the site of an ancient keep, an unpretending-looking red sandstone cathedral, two or three handsome churches, several good streets, and certain curious places called rows. The Chester Row is a broad arched stone gallery running parallel with the street within the facades of the houses. It is partly open on the side of the street, and just one story above it. Within the rows, of which there are three or four, are shops, every shop being on that side which is furthest from the street. All the best shops in Chester are to be found in the rows. These rows, to which you ascend by stairs up narrow passages, were originally built for the security of the wares of the principal merchants against the Welsh. Should the mountaineers break into the towns, as they frequently did, they might rifle some of the common shops, where their booty would be slight, but those which contained the more costly articles would be beyond their reach, for at the first alarm the doors of the passages up which the stairs led would be closed, and all access to the upper streets cut off, from the open arches of which missiles of all kinds, kept ready for such occasions, could be discharged upon the intruders, who would be soon glad to beat a retreat. These rows and the walls are certainly the most remarkable memorials of old times which Chester has to boast of. Upon the walls it is possible to make the whole compass of the city, there being a good but narrow walk upon them. The northern wall abuts upon a frightful ravine, at the bottom of which is a canal. From the western one there is a noble view of the Welsh hills. As I stood gazing upon the hills from the wall, a ragged man came up and asked for charity. "'Can you tell me the name of that tall hill?' said I, pointing in the direction of the south-west. "'That hill, sir,' said the beggar, "'is called Moyle Vamach. "'I ought to know something about it, as I was born at its foot.' "'Moyle,' said I, "'a bald hill. Vamach, "'Maternal or motherly. Moyle Vamach, "'the mother Moyle. "'Just so, sir,' said the beggar. "'I see you are a Welshman, like myself.' though I suppose you come from the south. Moyle Vama is the mother Moyle, and is called so because it is the highest of all the Moyles. Did you ever hear of a place called Mould? said I. Oh, yes, Your Honour, said the beggar. Many a time, and many's the time I have been there. In which direction does it lie? said I. Towards Moyle Vama, Your Honour, said the beggar, which is a few miles beyond it. You can't see it from here, but look towards Moyle Vama, and you will see over it. Thank you, said I, and gave something to the beggar, who departed after first taking off his hat. Long and fixedly did I gaze in the direction of Mould. The reason which induced me to do so was the knowledge of an appalling tragedy transacted there in the old time, in which there is every reason to suppose a certain Welsh bard called Lewis Glyncothy had a share. This man, who was a native of South Wales, flourished during the Wars of the Roses. 
Besides being a poetical, he was something of a military genius, and had a command of foot in the army of the Lancastrian Jasper Earl of Pembroke, the son of Owen Tudor, and the half-brother of Henry the Sixth. After the Battle of Mortimer's Cross, in which the Earl's forces were defeated, the warrior bard found his way to Chester, where he married the widow of a citizen, and opened a shop, without asking permission of the mayor, who, with the officers of justice, came and seized all his goods, which, according to his own account, filled nine sacks, and then drove him out of the town. The bard, in a great fury, indicted an ordal, in which he invites Reinacht ap Griffith ap Bledin, a kind of predatory chieftain, who resided a little way off in Flintshire, to come and set the town on fire, and slaughter the inhabitants, in revenge for the wrongs he had suffered, and then proceeds to vent all kinds of imprecations against the mayor and people of Chester, wishing, amongst other things, that they might soon hear that the Dee had become too shallow to bear their ships, that a certain cutaneous disorder might attack the wrists of great and small, old and young, laity and clergy, that grass might grow in their streets, that Illa and Kivailach, the Welsh saints, might slay them, that dogs might snarl at them, and that the King of Heaven, that the saints Branach and Non, might afflict them with blindness, which peace, however ineffectual in inducing God and the saints to visit the Chester people, with the curses with which the furious bard wished them to be afflicted, seems to have produced somewhat of its intended effect on the chieftain, who shortly afterwards, on learning that the mayor and many of the Chester people were present at the fair of Mould, near which place he resided, set upon them at the head of his forces, and after a desperate combat in which many lives were lost, took the mayor prisoner, and drove those of his people who survived into a tower which he set on fire and burnt, with all the unhappy wretches which it contained, completing the horrors of the day by hanging the unfortunate mayor. Conversant as I was with all this strange history, is it wonderful that I looked with great interest from the wall of Chester in the direction of Mould? Once did I make the compass of the city upon the walls, and was beginning to do the same a second time, when I stumbled against a black, who, with his arms leaning upon the wall, was spitting over it in the direction of the river. I apologised, and contrived to enter into conversation with him. He was tolerably well dressed, had a hairy cap on his head, was about forty years of age, and brutishly ugly, his features scarcely resembling those of a human being. He told me he was a native of Antigua, a blacksmith by trade, and had been a slave. I asked him if he could speak any language besides English, and received for answer that besides English he could speak Spanish and French. Forthwith I spoke to him in Spanish, but he did not understand me. I then asked him to speak to me in Spanish, but he could not. "'Surely you can tell me the name for water in Spanish,' said I. He, however, was not able. "'How is it,' said I, "'that pretending to be acquainted with Spanish, "'you do not even know the word for water?' He said he could not tell, but supposed he had forgotten the Spanish language, adding, however, that he could speak French perfectly. I spoke to him in French. He did not understand me. I told him to speak to me in French, but he did not. I then asked him the word for bread in French, but he could not tell me. I made no observations on his ignorance, but inquired how he liked being a slave. He said not at all, that it was very bad to be a slave, as a slave was forced to work. 
I asked him if he did not work now that he was free. He said, very seldom, that he did not like work, and that it did not agree with him. I asked how he came into England, and he said that wishing to see England, he had come over with the gentleman as his servant, but that as soon as he got there, he had left his master, as he did not like work. I asked him how he contrived to live in England without working. He said that any black might live in England without working, that all he had to do was attend religious meetings and speak against slavery in the Americans. I asked him if he had done so. He said he had, and the religious people were very kind to him, and gave him money, and that a religious lady was going to marry him. I asked him if he knew anything about the Americans. He said he did, and that they were very bad people who kept slaves and flogged them. And quite right too, said I, if they were lazy rascals like yourself, who want to eat without working. What a pretty set of knaves and fools must they be, who encourage a fellow like you to speak against negro slavery, of the necessity of which you yourself are a living instance, and against a people of whom you know as much as of French or Spanish. Then leaving the black, who made no other answer to what I said, than spitting with considerable force in the direction of the river, I continued making my second compass of the city upon the wall. Having walked round the city for a second time, I returned to the inn. In the evening I went out again, passed over the bridge, and then turned to the right in the direction of the hills. Near the river, on my right, on a kind of green, I observed two or three tents resembling those of gypsies. Some ragged children were playing near them, who, however, had nothing of the appearance of the children of the Egyptian race, their locks being not dark, but either of a flaxen or red hue and their features not delicate and regular, but coarse and uncouth, and their complexions not olive, but rather inclined to be fair. I did not go up to them, but continued my course till I arrived near a large factory. I then turned and retraced my steps into the town. It was Saturday night, and the streets were crowded with people, many of whom must have been Welsh, as I heard the Cambrian language spoken on every side. End of chapter 3